This message was recorded live at Life Church Lancashire, a contemporary Christian church in the north of England. Learn more at lifelanks.org. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers round him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. They knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took the robe off him and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. This is the end. A life cruelly snuffed out in the horror of crucifixion. Subjects were beaten and flayed until they were too weak to resist. Then hauled up on a wooden cross in the baking sun. Their limbs usually, as in Jesus' case, held there by nails. It was designed to be a slow, painful and humiliating death. Tumors could develop and cause the body to swell oddly and crows would come and peck at the bodies. Historians have described it as the most brutal form of killing ever devised. The Romans used it to remind the locals who was really in charge, placing crosses alongside busy roads and entrances to cities. It was designed not only to punish, but also to deter any other would-be troublemakers for at least a generation. You think you're something special. You want to be a leader. You want to be high and lifted up. Okay, we'll give you high and lifted up. This is the end, not just of a life, but of a movement. We can see the story goes on, how the hopes of the Jesus movement had been dashed. Some of Jesus' followers explain a few days after his death. In Luke 24, about Jesus of Nazareth, he was a prophet, powerful and word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. This was their hope, their expectation, that Jesus would redeem Israel. Redeem them from what? From Roman oppression, of course. They were a conquered people, their beliefs trivialized and insulted by this man Caesar calling himself Lord. And his parody of peace, which really meant violent subjugation. Jesus' message had a totally different place in mind. That's what he described. It asked what the world would look like if God were truly in charge and announced that this kingdom of God was already breaking out here and now. The Jewish people had longed hope for a Messiah, God's anointed one, who would liberate the people and set up a new theocracy with a God-chosen king in charge, on the throne, administering justice. But when Jesus hung on that cross, it was clear to them that he was not the one that they had been waiting for. Jesus wasn't considered a hero on Good Friday, just a tragic figure. And this Jesus kingdom movement had literally reached a dead end.
When you visit any church graveyard, you'll usually see two symbols, the tombstone and the cross. A cross, you might think, is a rather fitting, if not gruesome, symbol of the end. A Roman method of executing prisoners, but also quashing dissent. The end of a life, and the end, too, of any rebellion that dare to rise. But the thing is, these crosses are intended to signify the exact opposite message, that this is not the end. Wherever you see this cross today, you can hear that same cry. It says that mild ailments are no longer deadly. It says that though you are injured and hungry, we will not leave you. It even says, architecturally, that a man who lived a long way away and a long time ago will not be forgotten. Even here, his memory will be perpetuated. Even now, this story can transform us. These graves bear the sign of the cross because those that put them here trusted that somehow Jesus' crucifixion had not only shaped their lives but also held a promise for the future. How did a tragedy, the execution of an innocent young man, become a symbol of hope? How did a scandal among the Jews that their fellow Hebrews would glorify the uncleanness of this naked and bloody mess become seen as exactly what needed to happen? How did the foolishness of worshipping a crucified man, something the Greeks openly mocked, become revered far beyond the borders of Israel? And how did the ultimate end become a symbol of defiance that says, even in the midst of suffering, oppression, violence and even death itself, that this is not the end? We live in the age of clickbait. If something doesn't grab our attention for a second, we've already scrolled on by. We taught by Hollywood movies and reality TV, celebrity gossip and social media to have a short attention span. But I wonder if today, just maybe for the next 12 or 15 minutes, you could give yourself that time to actually engage with something on a deeper level, to actually lean into it, to actually think just for a few minutes about this story, because unlike the latest gadget or beauty product, this actually could change everything. You see, we were never meant to hear this story. We were never meant to hear about Jesus. He wasn't the kind of person that history books remember, like a, a military leader or a political figure. We were never meant to hear about Jesus, just like we were never, we've never heard of any of the other would-be messiahs of the first century. Can anybody name one? You see, here we are, despite all of that, 2,000 years later, celebrating Easter. What was so significant about the cross of Jesus, as opposed to all the other would-be messiahs who died on crosses? Some have said that it is because the cross is the ultimate example of love. But crucifixion was the ultimate example of barbarism, of the wielding of threat and violence as a tool of domination. What made Jesus' crucifixion any different from the many others who were crucified by Rome? Unless Jesus' death achieved something, it's only a tragedy. John 15 tells us that Jesus said, Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. And in John 10, that no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. This is only love if this is God refusing to resist this punishment and not a man who is powerless to do so. 
And if God is being killed, then there is way more going on here than just an inspiring story. Others have pointed out that scripture suggests that on the cross, something's happening on a cosmic scale. Somehow this represents God dealing with the problems of the world. But the way this has often been told suggests that God is angry. Humanity has broken the rules and therefore deserves death, capital punishment. On the cross, Jesus somehow stands in the way and takes the death blow on our behalf. God is placated and now, as long as we believe in him, we don't have to go to a place called hell, but our souls can go to a place called heaven when we die. This is what many people, both inside and outside the church, think the Christian gospel is. To be sure, there are elements of truth here and echoes of what we see in the Bible itself. But when we tell the story this way, we demonstrate that we've been influenced more by pagan ideas about a vengeful God and innocent victim and an immortal soul than what Jesus actually believed. When we tell the story this way, when we read John 3.16, instead of discovering that for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, It sounds more like, for God so hated the world that he killed his son. According to the Bible, the cross deals with the problem of human sin and rebellion, but not in this way. So let me tell you the historical answer. Why can we look at the cross and say, this is not the end? Well, you already know, of course. The answer is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The story doesn't end at the cross, but continues in the Gospels with the resurrection on the third day and throughout the New Testament as this movement spreads out across antiquity. The BBC commissioned a piece of research this Easter that said only, uh, sorry, one in four Christians do not believe that the resurrection happened. And even more in that, we're a bit sketchy about the details. But no wonder... Popular conceptions of the cross are simply an inspiring example or a divine act of violence have no need for the resurrection, except for as a happy ending or some sort of general demonstration that God is powerful. They have no real need for the cross either. Jesus could have been killed in any other way. But what if the nature of the cross and the resurrection themselves were central to what God was doing in Jesus? This is how Paul sees the resurrection in 1 Corinthians. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. In verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. What would happen if we learn to ask a better question? You know, I think often the key in life when we're stuck is sometimes to find out how we can ask a better question applies in so many situations. You see, the Jews asked, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel, which meant, when are you going to violently overthrow the Romans so we may set up a Davidic kingship? Liberal Christians ask, how can Jesus' life and teaching serve as a moral example in our human project to build a better society? Because of course, we know that, we know now that people don't really rise from the dead. You know, as if the disciples like didn't know that and we've just worked that out in 2017. Popular conservative Christianity under the influence of paganism goes to the other extreme, gives up on transforming society, asking instead, how can I ensure that my immortal soul goes to heaven rather than hell when I die? What if 
instead of these questions laden as they are with the heavy weight of our assumptions, we simply and humbly sought to understand, God, what are you doing? What if we just listen to the story again? See, what did Jesus show and tell us about what he was doing? He described how things should be. He called it the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven and demonstrated that this new reality was already breaking out in him. The resurrection was the evidence that God's new age had begun. Jesus didn't achieve his victory by living on as an immortal soul, but by defeating death and rising again in a physical human body that walked and ate and so affirmed God's good creation rather than trying to escape it. The cross is not the end in the biblical story because three days later, Jesus rose from the dead and that is what turned a despondent rabble into a hopeful community that became the greatest sociological movement the world has ever seen. What really got them going was the resurrection, which also helped them understand what was actually happening at the cross. When Jesus spoke with the men On the road in Luke 24, he did not say, let's abandon that kingdom stuff. I've got a better idea. Go into heaven when you die. The resurrection let them know that this kingdom of God project had actually begun in earnest. So just like Jesus' first disciples, we can only understand the cross by looking back on this side of the resurrection. Whilst remembering what Jesus said and did in his ministry, rereading scripture in this light, just as we see the disciples doing at the end of the Gospels, through our Acts and in the Epistles. So, in these last five minutes, what happened at the cross? What did God achieve by the cross? Well, Paul writes in Colossians 2 that when you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. God forgave, God disarmed evil, God triumphed. Jesus died at the hands of the ultimate empire of domination. Throughout Jesus' ministry, there appears to be this gathering storm of opposition against him. Do you remember one time they they try and push him off a cliff? There's all these kinds of moments that happen. And then it seems that at the cross, the forces of evil do their worst against him, but are then exhausted. This is not a distant God but one who not only comes to us in human flesh, but also one that cannot be accused of turning away from real suffering. This is what love looks like, Jesus demonstrates, as he takes all the violence and hatred of the world onto himself. God doesn't deal with evil by saying, I can be more violent than the rest of you. Many of Jesus' contemporaries were expecting the battle to be fought against the Roman authorities, but Jesus is saying no. The problem's deeper and darker than that. You don't defeat force with force. Then, of course, force is still in charge. You can only defeat force with love. The cross is not the end of Jesus Christ, but it is the death blow for the powers that enslave us, for sin, even for death itself. So for us, this is not the end. But as Tom Wright puts it, the cross is the day the revolution began. 2,000 years later, we may ask, where is this revolution that Jesus began? Isn't the world still 
a rather hopeless place. Well, of course, for many people it is. And the cross calls us to be in solidarity with those who are suffering. But the modern myth is that nothing much has changed. In reality, incredible strides forward in justice have been made by the positive influence of Christianity on the wider culture. In the ancient world, no one thought much about looking after the poor or taking care of the sick, unless you could pay. Christians not only modeled this in their communities, but took what they were practicing in private into the public square. Medicine, education, justice, forgiveness, humility, human rights are the Christian legacy. Any historians here? These practices and values were unthinkable in antiquity. The great editorial in the Times this weekend says exactly that. You see, that's not to say that we can just get on with making the world a better place without any further reference to God. Like the song we heard earlier, our human projects, even when they start out with the best intentions, can become an evil empire of oppression when we choose to worship created things rather than the creator, as Romans 1 puts it. God's concerned with our freedom. And the walls we build to keep others out often become the prison that holds us in. Our attempts to broker peace through war often perpetuate violence. That's why we must remember that although there is an act of violence at the center of our faith, it is not God dishing out divine violence, but God absorbing the violence done against him. In our work to cooperate with what God is doing, we must remember to stay tethered to the roots of our story. In scripture, dealing with evil is God's job and without the promise of the age to come, When God will decisively put the world to rights, we are without hope. But as those who live between Christ's resurrection and our own, we are distinguished by hope. Jesus spoke of the kingdom both as already here and yet to come. We live in the now, but not yet, of the eternal life and freedom that God has brought for us and for all creation. God, what are you doing? Well, if we go back to 1 Corinthians, Paul goes on to say that if only for this life we hope in Christ, we're of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. So joy and hope should describe us should characterize our lives. We are the resurrection life people. Therefore, let us turn from the dead end way of living that belongs to our past and turn towards the freedom that God has for us. To be a Christian is to live a life shaped by both the cross and the resurrection. I want to know Christ, Paul says, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. You see, when you ask a better question, you get a better answer. That's how I want to sum up the Easter story today. Because when we're concerned with ultimate purpose, rather than relatively trivial matters, everything finds its proper place. That is why today, through these many scriptures, and I know sometimes quite technical arguments, I've sought to simply tell the story of Easter. A story that so often, perhaps unsurprisingly, is distorted. But it's our job to keep this story going. This is a God who, by the cross and the resurrection, both knows our sufferings 
and has acted decisively to defeat the powers that conspire against us. This is a God who affirms the goodness of what he has made. Therefore, our hope is not to escape this world through death, but to see our lives transformed by participating in his mission to transform all things. Lives marked by hope as we await the future age when we will see the visible completion of God's action to set all things right. Our hope is not in an angry God or an absent God, but in our gracious God. There were times when, I've got to be honest, through the warped prism of the sort of depression that I had at the time, life really did uh, not feel worth living. A lot of it was work-related work in terms of pressures and but to be honest, it was pressures I was putting on myself. It felt like I was on a treadmill, relentless, oh, it, it seemingly hopeless at the time, lonely, feeling um, really quite guilty uh, as well because um, I had so many things going for me. Uh, not least, I'm a Christian. I believed in, in Jesus. I'd got a saviour. I've got a fantastic wife, brilliant relationship, um, lovely family great job um you know house car the, the the works it's almost like well what what have i got to got to feel bad about if you'd have asked me do you do you know about the grace of god i'd, I'd have said yeah i've 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 experienced it i've i've i know about it um but it's it's only when i was in that situation of of complete helplessness um where i really had nowhere else to turn that i uh, in desperation, I kind of said, you know, God, you're going to have to help me here. He took me to over a period of months and he's still taking me um, on a whole new level of, of experience of, of grace, learning the unforced rhythms of grace. And uh, I'd read it and I thought, oh, that's, that's a lovely turn of phrase. But I, I, the, there is a real truth to that. Jesus says, come to me, all those, all of you are... are you know, heavily burdened and are worn out um, and I'll give you rest and that's what I needed and it was only with really coming to Jesus uh, that I experienced that rest really teaching me and, and making me aware of how he views me how my standards for myself and my thought processes were actually really warped in terms of how he thought about me. I've got a loving Heavenly Father. When I really saw and had a new perspective on, on how he saw me, it took a lot of the pressure off. And, um, you know, I really began to, to rest and, well, take time for myself and, and give myself a bit of a break. I just enjoyed hanging out with God. That <laughs> um, really he was able to be real to me on a daily basis throughout the day in whatever I was doing. There was like that extra perspective of just enjoying being in his company and enjoying being his child and knowing that I was accepted. Every year one in four people will experience some mental health issues, be it anxiety or depression or, or whatever. You are not alone. <laughs> I dare say with life as it is, it will become more common. Talk. Be honest, 
not in terms of telling all and sundry, but particularly people who you know and you trust, knowing that somebody is aware and yet they still care for me is tremendously, uh, tremendously powerful and really effective. So that's my advice if you're in that situation, if you know somebody or suspect somebody is in that situation or is experiencing those issues, is just get alongside them and you know, just maybe just listen. You don't have to have solutions. Just kind of be there and let them know that they're loved and appreciated and, you know, that you're going to give them some space. It is a season, you know, and, and with support, they will come through into another season. It's certainly not the end. The cross um, is dreadful, is <laughs> shocking. Um, it's obscene, but uh, again, it, it talks of the extent um, of his love for me and what he won't, uh, you know, he wasn't even put off by, by that of being mocked and stripped and spat on and I could go on and on, but that, that didn't put him off uh, coming to rescue me. He conquered everything that is rubbish in the world call it evil, call it whatever, um, he's beaten, he's triumphed over that. Even the grave, he conquered death, um, fears, anxiety, loneliness, he conquered all of that. Tremendous feeling of, of, of hope and a future for me and mine because of the resurrection. Discover more about us at lifelinks.org and stay inspired by subscribing